but I think for your spiritual it life, it's the same as your professional life. Yeah. It's the person who just says, I'm going to run this out. I'm gonna, when I'm on fumes, I'm going to keep moving. When I'm being criticized, I'm going to keep moving. When my parents don't support me, I'm going to keep moving. When my bills are late, I'm going to keep moving. And I've had times where somebody had to step in and pay my rent. And there are times where I thought I wasn't going to make it. And there were times when I was shipwrecked in the media and I thought my career was over many times, sometimes for personal reasons and sometimes for professional reasons. And yet I just made up my mind early on that no matter what came, I was going to keep walking. Greetings and salutations, friends. It's so good to be back with you. This is chapter 20 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. What do you think of my use of the word chapter, by the way? I like it because I am telling stories, so I wanted to pivot from episode, which kind of makes it feel like a TV show, to chapters, which makes it feel more like a book. And since I like books more than TV, there you have it. Let me know what you think, though. Uh, hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Nick Lepar, or Let's Give a Damn. Let me know what you think of chapter versus episode. Anyway. Welcome back to those of you who have been with us for a while. So good to have you with us and welcome to the rest of you joining us for the first time. Always exciting to have new additions to the Let's Give a Damn family. Now, before I introduce this week's guest, a word from our sponsor, Scout Books. I want to tell you a bit about my friends at Scout Books in Portland, Oregon, a company that really does give a damn. They make custom pocket notebooks for your brand, business, event, or anything else you might want a sweet notebook for. But what really makes Scout Books unique is that they make all their books with 100% recycled paper and they run their shop off of renewable energy. Scout Books also sponsors projects that benefit organizations doing good like the ACLU and the National Forest Foundation. They recently launched a book called We the People Are Powerful, a field guide to getting active in local politics, which is a place where individual action can really make a difference. So if you, the Let's Give a Damn listener, want to make a guide for taking action in your own community or create a fundraiser giveaway or just check out some well-made notebooks, Scout Books is offering 15% off anything in their store. Go check out the following links to get 15% off Scout Books. That's scoutbooks.com slash give a damn. Again, that's scoutbooks.com slash give a damn to get 15% off anything and everything in their store. Now, back to introducing the show. Now, this week, I am thrilled to share with you a conversation I have with writer, author, journalist, and a little bit of a troublemaker, Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan lives in New York City. We sat down in his living room in Brooklyn and had a wonderful conversation. Jonathan has authored several books. He writes for Religious News Service, The Atlantic, The Week, and many, many other major publications. I enjoy this conversation thoroughly because Jonathan is a little bit of a troublemaker, the good kind of troublemaker, as am I. Well, I hope I'm the good kind of troublemaker. And he has become a very bold writer and contributor. I learned a lot about his upbringing, his life, his thoughts on writing, on writers, our current political climate, and how writers and creative people can give a damn. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation a lot, so let's get right into it. I'm Nick Lapara, and this is my conversation with Jonathan Merritt. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan Merritt. I'm so glad that I'm here in your living room in Williamsburg. Yeah, in, in Brooklyn. It's in I'm Brooklyn. glad I'm glad to have you. Welcome. Thanks. We tried to do this this morning. I showed up at the coffee shop, or the I guess I don't know if it's just a coffee shop. It's a you can eat there and do yeah, whatever else. Urban spot. rustic, and uh, it was not urban rustic anymore because uh, this is Williamsburg. This is Brooklyn, and they're shooting a TV show there. So we switched to this evening. I am here, super excited. Um, so how do you describe what you do and who you are? Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I don't have a business card, so I don't really have like a title, but I know that that that's probably the most common 
phrase people use is like a faith and culture writer or a religion writer or a religion columnist, a commentator. But uh, I write for, uh, I'm a contributing writer for The Atlantic. I, I do some um, commentary with various outlets and then I write books. Uh, I haven't written a book in a while, but I, I will have one out not too long. But um, I write books and I help people write books and I coach writers. So I'm kind of a writer. I have this little universe that, that I've kind of built as a writer that I think you have, actually you have to build. Sure. I mean, Ernest Hemingway is dead figuratively and literally. So having to create multiple revenue streams so that yeah. I can do what I love, which is write. Yeah. Well, I need to, we need to talk offline about writing then and coaching because I have four solid, I think solid book ideas. I need to, I'm, I'm at that point where I ha- it's ready. Like I'm ready to rock and roll. Mm-hmm. I just don't know the, like, do I go with an agent? Do I not? Do I mm-hmm. publish it? Do I self publish? Mm-hmm. So many questions, right? When you know, actually, probably there are a few things that we'll talk about in this interview that will resonate with sure. as many listeners as what you just said, because according to the latest data, 70% of Americans say they have a book inside them. And yet a percent of that will actually take it to completion. And I think that's so sad that there are so many people who have this, this thing in their bones, they've got a story rattling around, and yet they, they lack the courage or the time or the will or the confidence to get it out. And that's what I love helping people do, is, is helping people say, I had this thing and I thought I could never give it birth. So you think those people that. should write them? I, I do, and I, I say that as somebody who's kind of played the midwife for a number of years, and I've seen a lot of writers. Now, when you say they, I put a little asterisk next to that. There's some people who don't need to write a book. They need to write a blog post. Sure. There are other people who they don't have a book. Yeah. Yeah. So for some people, they don't need to write a book. But I would say oftentimes I meet people who have a truly marketable book inside of them. And for whatever reason, they haven't given it birth. And I think that's really sad. I like that. Well, okay. I'm ready. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So let's start at the very beginning. I want to get some stuff out because I can spend hours talking about who I am today and directly point to specific circumstances, people, things in my childhood and in my teen years that made me who I am today. So what is that like for you? Tell me as much or as little about your childhood, your family, your faith, where, where you grew up, what that environment was like that made you who the Jonathan Merritt that's sitting in the living room with me today. Yeah, that is, that is an ocean of a question, but I'll try to scoop a cup out yeah, of it. Yeah, scoop a cup, few if, ladles out for me. See if this works. The most, the cornerstone of who I am, and this, this sounds so damn cliche, actually, when you think about it, the cornerstone of who I am really is my faith. You know, oftentimes, and I don't even know how I would characterize that. I guess broadly Christian, uh, I guess by some definitions, maybe evangelical, but by uh, other people would say there's no <laughs> way I'm an evangelical. I, I don't know, but I would say some kind of like transcendent component that was given to me at a really young age. You know, I grew up in a household my dad was, uh, you can still to this day, if you wake up on Sunday mornings, you can turn on the Trinity Broadcast Network. He preaches nationwide in all 50 states and 122 countries he's broadcasted. Uh, he was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. at the time with 16 million members. Prominent religious leader. I grew up really in the, in the, the inner sanctum of the religious right. Jerry Falwell was a close family friend. He paid for my college education at Liberty. So I really grew up inside the right flank of Christianity in America in the, the late 1980s and, and the, the 1990s. And that really shaped me in a lot of ways. And many ways are positive. You know, there are a lot of people out there that I see on social media, and they're, they're like the, the people who they're bitter about the way that they were raised mm. in terms of their re- religious background. Maybe they were too conservative. They grew up fundamentalist. They're, they're pissed about it. And I can tell you, I bet you if I, if I could pull all of your listeners into this room right now and ask them the name that comes to mind, I could name two or three people and everybody would say, oh, it's those people. Right. And I hate when I'm compared to those people because I don't think I'm at all like them. I feel profoundly grateful for the way I was raised. Sure. I, I, I grew up with an appreciation for the Bible. I grew up with a, an appreciation for... Um, piety and for trying to live in a way that I think would be reflective of the, the justice and righteousness of God. And so, and I, and I have a really great relationship with my dad. Mm. I have a really, my dad. My dad was here last week and we were going to Yankees games and hitting, you know, balls, hitting golf balls into the Hudson and having really deep disagreements about theology. And yet we've got a fantastic relationship. People are often surprised about that. So I love 
evangelicalism. I love uh, American Christianity. And I think it's out of that love that I've become, in some ways, uh, a critic of, of the movement. And I can critique it because I love it. I can critique it because it's sort of like the Oracle of Delphi. I know what of I speak. I've been steeped in this. Mm. And I, I know the ins and outs. And so I try to speak truth and love. There are some people out there that if ever you, if ever you criticize the bride, uh, they're, they're upset about that. But I think you, know, you can call out the ways in which the makeup is smeared and the dress is tattered and still say, but yet this is the bride of Christ, whatever that means. And there's a respect for it. So faith has been a huge part of that. I think, um, I think personally, there have been some personal dynamics that have shaped who I am. I've always been adventurous. Okay. I think having a, um, a sexual orientation that doesn't conform to the kind of the norm in the Christian church has been, has been interesting. And that's been a journey. It's been a, a journey that has somewhat unfolded publicly. Um, you know, some has been written about that. Much of it has been true, particularly the things that I have written about it sure. have been true. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think I've always been both a part of the Christian movement and then kind of like on the inside edge, almost an outsider, but not. Just because I don't feel like I conform. I don't politically conform. I don't feel sure. like I theologically conform. I, I have a hard time fitting into a box. And then in terms of, of, of who I am as a person, it just has never really conformed. And so feeling like I'm an insider and an outsider at the same time has been something that's really marked not just my life, but I would say also my professional career. Let's go back to something you said about your dad, you know, your dad being here for, you know, the weekend or week and hitting golf balls and all that, all the while having profound disagreements on big issues. How do you do that? Because I know there's probably, there's people listening. I have had to, you know, I'm 33. I have a fantastic relationship with my dad. Sometimes because we have just chosen to not let's we're not we're not gonna we're not going near that topic or issue you know we've learned how to navigate that and not perfectly but how do you how do you do that how do you maintain a great relationship with someone whom you because a lot of people just say like fuck it like I'm done half my friends don't talk to their parents or their siblings because of things like this. I mean, oh, every day, just yesterday, I heard somebody that said, I don't, I haven't spoken to my brother in three years. And it's about political disagreements. And so, yeah, what, what, what uh, counsel could you give just generally? What do you do and how does, it, do you think it's healthy? It, yeah, I would say the first is, you know, to tie into really what you, what you feel called to do even in this, in this podcast, you have to decide that you really give a damn. Mm -hmm. And most people in their relationships with their parents, they know it, sure. but they do not name it. And that is so important to say, to look each other in the eyes and say, I disagree with you on a lot. In fact, some things I think you are dead dong wrong about these things. But I want you to know that I'm committed to walking this out. And there is nothing you will ever do that can sever this relationship, this bond between us. And if ever we identify anything that threatens that, let's speak about that. Let's call that out of the shadows so there's not this weird thing between us. Mm. So we're intentional about stewarding our relationship. We joke about it. We talk about it. We're, we are aware of those dynamics and they're always something that's named. They're a part of the conversation. That's important. And I think the other thing is practice. We practice debate and disagreement and discussion. And we always make sure that one of us after that comes back around. I mean, I was having a, a Twitter debate with my dad and I remember I was getting real high on, my, uh, on the horse and I just said, don't you lecture me about X, Y, and Z because A, B, C. And he said, okay, well, I'll let that be the final word on this. And then he wrote back, well, no, that's not the final word. The final word is, I love you. And I was able to say, hey, you know, I love you too. You're always, you know, my dad and um, you'll always be that. And no matter what we disagree on, we'll always be there for yeah. each other. So being able to kind of like really duke it out. And I mean, there are times where our voices, we could shatter a window. Oh yeah. And yet Same. after that, wrap your arms around each yep. other, go watch a college football game and yep. be done with it. That has been really important. But like truly not shoving stuff under the rug, but actually like really, that's not as important as this bond that we that's have. That's right. right. Yeah. And that takes, that has taken for us years. There was a time we had a disagreement in when I was a senior in high school. I didn't talk to him for three months. 
I didn't say a word to him for three months. Lived in the same house? Lived in the same house. And he and dad, and my dad, if he were here, he would tell you he thought our relationship was over, that that bridge was burnt. And it has been even before that. Now, that was, that was in 1999, right? So we're talking 18 years ago. We've been walking this out in various ways for almost two decades, and we're still learning things. So if you're going to get intentional about it, be ready for the long haul, because there are always new elements, new textures, new layers of your personality that will come to the surface as you age, you evolve, you change, and that will rub that other person the wrong way. And then you have to renegotiate things once again. But if you're committed to doing it, and you give yourself time to practice what real love and community looks like, I think that it's totally possible. I so, mean, we're proof that it's possible, I yeah. think. Yeah, super helpful. Let's, uh, I wanna talk about your, what you do for a living. You know, your, your job as a writer, as a communicator, would you say you also, like journalist, reporter? Like some of it's in there, right? Like you're Some of it is reporting. I would say the majority, you know, and this is the thing. I, one thing that makes me mad is when people will say, well, you know, I can't believe you were so biased on this issue because you're a journalist. And I always say, I'm actually a commentator and I'm paid to have a bias. Sure. So there are reporters who are paid not to have a They're, bias. They just report. I yeah. write mostly opinion and analysis. I don't do a lot of reporting. On very rare occasion, I will. But I've been so vocal about so many issues. I've, I've published now maybe, say, 3,000, 3,500 pieces. I'm pretty much on the record about almost everything. <laughs> so at this point, to, to just report about something as if I have no opinion about it would be really difficult. So I am a journalist, I'm a commentator, I'm an opinion columnist, but uh, I tend to not do a lot of reporting. So we're in this like super extremely volatile uh, news environment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just check the Twitters. That's an understatement. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, watch um, one, just watch uh, five minutes of a White House press briefing with, you know, Spicer or Huckabee or whatever. And you'll just see like, whoa, this is, this is not okay. This is tense. I guess what I'm, what I'm, what I want to ask is like, how do you decide what to, because this is you, this is your life. This is what you give a damn about. You've, you just said you've written 35, like that's insane. That's an insane amount of content you've put out expressing what matters to you the kinds of opinions you have. How do you decide how to do that? What to write about? How bold you wanna be on certain issues? Like what's, the pro what's that process for you? Um, because I think that process that you're gonna communicate will help anybody, whether they're a columnist, uh, an opinion commentator, like just your process is gonna help us learn how we figure out what we not only give a damn about, but then how do we communicate that mm -hmm. to those around us, however big or small our platform or your influences. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a couple of things because the first thing is whenever a writer comes to me and says, I think I have a book idea, what do you think? Do you think this is a good book idea? I always tell people I'm looking for the two yeses, which is the answer to two questions. First, should this be written? And second, are you the person to write it? Mm. So should this be written? Maybe, maybe there's an article on uh, what it means to be a 21st century woman that needs to be written. I'm just not the person to write that, sure. right? Um, I don't have any experience in that. I don't have any insider knowledge about it. I don't have anything fresh to say. And the second is, is are you the person to write it? Not are you the only person to write it or are you the number one best person to write it? But do you have the knowledge, experience, and, and something to say about this that of another person would not be able to offer? So I'm always looking for that. I think another question is, is about what, what we, in journalism, you would call newsworthiness. And so there, there are sort of three questions. There are eyes, the three eyes that I look for, which is one, is it interesting enough? So mm. Is this really interesting? Is it interesting to you or is it interesting to your reader, to your listener, to your audience? Most people are very selfish when they produce content. They go, well, I think this is so interesting. And you go, yeah, yeah, but there's like, nobody cares about this. So is it interesting enough? The second is, is, is it important enough? Like maybe you want to write about some small teeny little thing, but, but you know, can you write something that's important enough? You know, I was going to write a column for The Atlantic that I'm almost finished with, actually, I was working on it today, about um, the, the rise and fall of the Christian bookstore. And in some ways, if you just report it out, it's just not important, no. not to an Atlantic audience. Maybe it would be if you wrote it for, like, I don't know, like Christianity Day or Christian Retailing Magazine or something. 
But if you take it a step further and you get to the implications of the information, which is, could this be good news for Christians? To have the books, Christian bookstore goes under, now Christian ideas have to compete alongside secular ideals. Why does that matter? How will that strengthen the Christian witness? How will that strengthen Christian thinkers? Now you're on to something. Now sure. you're, in, you're into an interesting conversation. So tweaking it to make sure it's not just interesting, but it's important. And then the third one is, is it innovative? Uh, most people, you know, they're not well-read enough within their own genre, and they don't realize that something they've written has kind of already been written. I mean, you've got like Trump pieces that are being produced right now sure. that they're so well-trod. They're so tired, yeah. you know, that it's like, okay, I, I get it. I get the piece about how the religion, the religious right actually brought about the moral right. depravity that 81%, they were fighting. You know? <laughs> We've already, yes, yeah. right. So yeah. I, and a friend the other day said, I heard that 81% of people have joke. You want to write a piece on that? It's like, wait, you heard that now? It's not innovative. It's not fresh. Yeah. And so trying to ask that next question is really important. So sure. is it important enough? Is it interesting enough? Is it innovative enough? Those are the three things that I look for when I'm trying to figure out if this topic is something good to write about. And beyond that, the very base before you even start with anything is, is, is this something you're passionate about? There are mm. a lot of people that are out there that are chasing market trends. They're chasing clicks. Uh, you know, and we're all guilty of all of these things. But if I write about something, it's because I'm passionate about it. And you only have one life to live. And do you really want to spend your life doing this or not? Right. If you're passionate about it and you're good about it and you're good at it, you'll find a way to make money yep. and other people will benefit. And that, I just believe that's true. I've yeah. seen that borne out time and time again. Yeah. Let's name some specific issues, things that you've written about a lot. That's a lot of pieces that you mentioned before that number. What are some specific issues that you really do give a damn about? Issues that you, that like burn in your heart, even if you've written on them before, like maybe there are other ways to tackle the issue. Like what are some specific, like just name some issues and then why? Yeah, I, I would say a couple of things. Broadly speaking, I would say religion matters, faith matters. There's been a shift, particularly in journalism, that happened, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, where people were firing all their religion reporters because they thought, oh, the, the politics guy can cover religion. But actually, almost everything in American life is religious or has a religious component to it. It has a faith angle to it's it. It's true. And most people don't realize that. And so I want to show people how religion is not just a thing in and of itself, but it's something that touches everything else. It seeps out into society. And America is a profoundly religious um, society. And so I want to show people that. That maybe I would say is almost the assumption. But then what I feel really, really passionate about is I want, here's what I think I feel called to do. I feel called to go ask the questions that other people are afraid to ask and to propose an answer that others are afraid to propose. I cannot tell you how many religious leaders and thinkers believe something, hmm. but they're too afraid to say what they believe for fear of backlash from the institution they serve or from the masses, you know, the, the torch-carrying, pitchfork-toting masses of Christians who will boycott them, who will slander them online if they say what they believe. And what I've been able to do is to build a certain level of autonomy, creating multiple revenue streams as a writer, for example, to create a certain level of autonomy where I can go out there and I can say things and people write me all the time and they <laughs> say, you said the thing that I wish I could say but I'm not able to say it because of X, Y, and Z. And so I, I want to be the guy that goes out and does that. And oftentimes that means that I go out on the left and I say, of course, gay people should be able to adopt. And here's why you're wrong about that. Other times I can say it on the right where I can say, yeah, I don't think that Tim Keller should be anathema and should, should be... Uh, somebody who could never be honored for an award by Princeton Theological Seminary, for example. The problem with that is, is when you feel called to that, a bridge by nature gets walked on from both sides. And I feel like that happens a lot. And people on the right think that I'm too far to the left, and people on the left think I'm too far to the right. But what I'm trying to do is not fit into a, a left-right matrix. 
but rather to begin raising questions that others aren't willing to raise and to provide those or to suggest those answers that others are unwilling to suggest. And what happens is, is people don't realize that I'm doing something altogether different than what they think I'm doing. Do you think that left-right divide is ever going to go away? Like, will there be more of yous popping up where, no, don't, identif- don't put me in either of those camps. I'm, I'm something different altogether. Is that happening more you know, than people realize? It's hard to say because the data, politically speaking, the data was showing the rise of the evangelical stuck in the middle. Uh, that was, you know, kind of like at the early Obama years. But that has shifted. Um, what we're seeing now is that America is becoming more polarized. Um, it's disconcerting, but it seems to be what's happening, that people are really gravitating toward the hard right or the hard left. Part of that's because you've got a person like President Trump who polarizes people. You have news media that polarizes people. And so when you polarize people, you can make money, you can build movements. Um, It's actually far more advantageous from a marketplace standpoint and from a political standpoint, from an institutional standpoint, to polarize people, to stake out a flank than it is in the middle. It's very, very hard if you're in the middle to make money, to build a movement, to mobilize a constituency, that can be really difficult. And I think in a capitalistic society where we're trading not just stocks, bonds, and money, but we're trading in the marketplace of ideas, I think people are finding that if you want to build a platform on social media, you don't want to be the guy in the middle. You want to be somebody, you you don't want to be balanced. You want to be imbalanced. That's who you want to be because there are people, because the, the internet has created a generation of specialists, not generalists, right? right? And that's true politically. So you don't, it, it, you know, if, if CNN wants to go out and they want to find somebody for a segment, they need a guy on the left and a guy on the right, right? right? They're not looking for the guy in the middle no, because they don't know what to expect from that guy. And then you end up with a guy in the middle and a guy on the right. And people say you tilted to the right. So the, everybody goes out, they look for the polls. And what's happening in television media is happening in books. It's happening in television that people tend to be gravitating toward the polls. I think that's unfortunate, but, but that's where we are. Speaking of President Trump, actually, before we speak of President Trump, do you want to, do you need more wine? I think I do need yeah, some just, more wine. Just, let's just, I'm going to go grab some. Yeah, please do. Because, well, you might need it for what I'm going to ask. I don't know. Or maybe, or maybe you'll just say, let's... It could be. This is, this is a wine. Um, yeah, what are you drinking, by the way? This is a wine that I picked up. We, I just got back from um, uh, Italy with oh. actually some religion writers and reporters. And we picked up this wine, and actually it was so funny because we got it in Italy, but it's, it was apparently, and we shipped it back, which was stupid, because um, it's made in Hungary. Oh. And I think it's bottled in uh, Philadelphia or something. Bottled in Brooklyn. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? In, bottled next street over. Right. I, I actually, uh, when I was in Amsterdam last, I brought this really amazing Trappist beer back. Mm-hmm. I put it right in my suitcase. Just wrapped mm. in all my clothes. Mm. Mm. I was so scared. It made it back, mm. but I was so scared that it was going to, just bust open and, mm-hmm. um, well, not be there and mm-hmm. ruin all my clothes. So you're, you, you, you know how I know you're a good interviewer? Because you want to keep my glass full of yeah. wine. No, absolutely. the more wine I drink, the more freely I'm going to speak to you. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping you'll just get through that whole bottle and we'll just oh. be just throwing if I get through that, If I get through that whole bottle, all you're going to hear is me snoring. So <laughs> well, that's not going to be then we'll know. Then we'll know it's over. Okay, so speaking of President Trump, um, there's this whole fake news. Like you're not like a straight up reporter working for some big you know, news conglomerate, but you're, you're an opinion call. You've already said what you are. Does that affect you? Like, does it affect you? How does it affect you? What do you think of that? How does it make you feel? Just this whole fake news thing where... I mean, people I know very close to me are, whether they're just repeating his talking points, his terrible talking points about fake news, or whether they really believe that and embody, whether they really think that everybody that, you know, is part of these, these news teams and whatever are spreading fake news. Like, what, what do you think about that? What, mm-hmm. Does that affect you at all at I'm, the RSN and the Atlantic? I, and- I am very concerned about actual fake news. Okay, um, explain. That exists. So sure. there, there were stories that were put out. Many of these, in fact, some of them have been proven to be disseminated by uh, Russians. Right. That there were news stories that were not real. Uh, there was a not story, even close. Oh, no, there was a story about uh, how Pope Francis had endorsed Trump. Yeah. And, there, and that was shared an unbelievable amount of times. Yeah. And there are people who have said that they went out there, that they promoted, wrote fake news in order to influence national politics. 
that's bad, that's scary. And the problem is, is that the people who are most susceptible to that are boomers, they're, yep. they're, they're elderly people who don't know, they click on things. You know, the, if you look at the data of how many people primarily got their news from Facebook during the election, it is yeah. staggering. There was a, a, Dana Bash had this interview that I shared uh, where she's interviewing this lady who was saying, well, you know, there was all these illegal immigrants who voted in this area that swung these states. She said, where do you get that? And she says, from Facebook. Yeah, it's on I mean, Facebook. Unbelievable. People get these, so fake news is a real problem. The, the problem that's even, I would say, greater than that is that now you have an effort to call mainstream media outlets fake news. Here's the difference. There are a lot of people listening to this who live in Paducah, Kentucky. Right. And they'll live their 76.5 years, and they'll never meet a journalist in their life. But I can tell you here, living in New York, I hung out with a journalist from the New York Times this week. Uh, the, the, I work alongside reporters. Kirsten Powers, who's a great reporter, was sitting in the mm -hmm. chair you're sitting in about three hours ago. These people... Don't tell me we that. Should have had, I should have had her on the I show. Have, I should have knocked her early. No, go. But... If you met these people, you know what you would find? They're just like your neighbors. They're just like your friends. They're out there trying to do a good job. Many of them have beliefs uh, that are fall to the left or fall to the right, but they're really trying to, 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 um, to carry forth the banner of truth, to, to shape their stories with the facts. Some of them, yes, some of them are, are not particularly happy about what's happening in, in culture or in Washington right now, but they're trying to do good jobs. That doesn't always work out so well, but but you know you take the big story this week was CNN. They ran this um, they ran this Russia story, mm. and uh, it turned out not to be as true as they thought it was, and they had to fire uh, two reporters and an editor. That's exactly what you want. Right. Fake news doesn't go fire those people. Nope. They give those people a raise and a promotion because nope. yep. they got a lot of clicks. They did exactly what a news organization should do, and I think. I think that people too often try to malign organizations. I think we should scrutinize stories. I think we should scrutinize reporters. I do think it's inappropriate for, you have reporters now who are becoming opinionators uh, on social media. I don't think that that mm. is appropriate. Uh, but I think by and large, the journalists that I know, and there are a lot of them, if, they, if you came to my house and you sat around my table with a glass of wine and a ribeye, you would find that these people are normal and they're actually quite good. They're, and they're doing a really good service. And oftentimes at the risk of their lives or their reputation yeah. for little or no money. And it's sad that we have a, a culture now that is so maligned and polarized, these people who are, are really quite good. And they're doing a good job because without them, people like me would be out of business. Without them, that person in Paducah, Kentucky would have no idea what's going on. And they're performing, I think, an essential function in American culture, which they've been performing since the founding of our nation. Will journalism and reporting survive? Like, how well is it going to survive this era and if it does i mean it will but the credibility is probably still there but is it going to take a while to recover from just this bullshit online our president and uh, his team of people well the people who hate news media will always hate new news media but what True. is interesting and 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 somebody you know journalists we should all get together and, and send a thank you note to president trump for this one journalism is thriving Mm. Um, the, the Washington Post is making money. Right. The New yeah. York Times is seeing yeah, a subscribers. massive increase yeah. in subscribers. A lot of my friends just started subscribing to all these things. That's you know, right. At least for the forecoming. People are paying right. for You right. should pay for journalism. Absolutely. You should go you pay out for your there coffee. You should pay for journalism. Absolutely. Agreed. And I think that what we're finding is that people are, are seeing the need for good journalism because we have a president who has such an aversion for telling the truth. And, and so that underscores the need for this because you, you, you are able now. You know, I have, I have a lot of conservative friends who love President Trump. I corresponded with one today and I sent him this note about uh, how much more money we spend in the military than China and Russia. And he wrote back and said, I don't believe those numbers on Russia and China. Here you are, you have independent numbers from an organization that watches these things. And you've got a little graph in front of you that tells you exactly how much money they're spending. Like it and could be verified. Right. Like you could go you verify. You don't believe it. those facts. Why? 
Why? Because it doesn't align with... Because it doesn't align with what you think is true or what you hope is true. And I think there are people who see that tension and they're saying, I want to pay for the people that are getting the numbers out. I want to pay for the people that are getting the facts out who are trying to tell the truth. They're imperfect, but they're trying to tell the truth with, with, while nobody eliminates their bias, but minimizing their bias as much as they can to get the truth out. And I think there are people who are paying for that. And so I think actually the future of journalism is, is brighter than it's been in, mm. in my adult life. And it's in part because of President Trump. Well, thank you, President Trump. Yeah. And is that so weird to say like the no. best thing that yeah. he's done is actually like reinvigorate? I mean... Should you guys like actually, I think you should actually do what you just said. You should get them all together and send an actual thank you. Well, when you think about it, I mean, first it would trip him out and whether he ever saw, but like if somebody would see it and it's, you're right. It's, it's very true. People that once stood in the shadows who just did their, like just showed up to work and did their job and did it well are now like, I'm even seeing there, I'm seeing a lot of these people that are full of integrity and good at what they do, you know, not without mistakes, but they're good at what they do. They're now like social media superstars like mm -hmm, i've mm -hmm. seen their numbers double and triple over this last year because they have much more credibility with all of us that didn't you know with many of us that didn't vote in that mm -hmm. direction you know yeah i mean look journalism is gonna is is and is going to have to evolve what you were having maybe a decade ago is you had all these little like fly-by-night websites that were popping up that were trying to do business the way the New York Times does business, it's not going to work. They're going to have to be stay nimble for the digital age, but there still is a place for kind of gumshoe reporting, people who are embedded inside the Beltway, who have great contacts in the White House, who are finding out things we would not otherwise know at the very risk of their own jobs, lives, credibility, imprisonment even. That's something that's being threatened now. Uh, freedom of the press is something that is often feels at risk with the threats that are made from this administration and, by the way, from the Obama administration, who was uh, terrible when it came to freedom of the press. So those people mm. will perform functions, but I think you're going to see a stratification of the types of things that mm. you're, you're seeing from journalism where you have a few people at the top, the Washington Posts and the New York Times and those kind of like traditional media outlets, and then you're going to have those folks at the bottom uh, and, I, and I'm not meaning that in the hierarchy, but I mean that sure. are more nimble. They're hiring the smaller staffs. They're more freelancers. And they're doing some of the, the different work that's out there. And even you've got folks like BuzzFeed who kind of operate in the middle. BuzzFeed News, you know, BuzzFeed is different from BuzzFeed News. But right. BuzzFeed News, I know a lot of people here who edit and write for BuzzFeed News, and they do really great work, and you'd be shocked by it. They're not all doing, like, you know, gifts of cats hanging from trees. Right. They're actually breaking really a lot of stuff. stories and doing good news. And some of their people, Andrew Krasinski was the guy who uh, found out the identity of the guy who created the GIF that President Trump did with the CNN head. Uh, uh, they, they found it on Reddit. That guy was at BuzzFeed News. Now he's at CNN. McKay Coppins, who was at BuzzFeed, is now at The Atlantic with me. Mm. These people are great They're reporters. They're credible reporters. Really good at what they do. there's a lot of people out there doing great work. We're very excited to continue partnering with Ruby Cup to bring you this podcast. We started a four-part series last week where we're telling the story of Ruby Cup, a startup based out of Europe that is helping women in the modern world and the developing world have a safe and healthy period. You may be asking, why in the hell would you have a menstruation cup company sponsor your show? You check out their website and you listen to Julie share their story and you'll know exactly why. Last week, Julie, one of the co-founders, introduced the company to us. This week, I asked Julie this question. How important is the work that Ruby Cup does? Here is her answer. At any point in time, you have around 800 million people uh, bleeding or menstruating. <laughs> and uh, millions of those people, while they're bleeding or menstruation, uh, menstruating, they do not have access to, uh, to products. Uh, to safe products to use uh, to manage their periods with. At the same time, um, menstruation is surrounded with a lot of stigma and a lot of shame. Uh, so it's kind of a conversation about uh, proper information about uh, menstruation and um, access to products is, is limited and it's a conversation that's been silenced. Um, so what we try to do is, number one, give access to a safe and sustainable product. And then number two, also give adequate information and, and uh, sound education on periods so, so people know how to manage them in a healthy way. 
Thank you so much, Julie. I love what you're doing. Everyone listening either has a period or knows someone who has a period. So go check out their website at rubycup.com and buy from them and support them by spreading this on social media. Now, back to my conversation with the one, the only, Jonathan Merritt. You use the word evolve, like journalism has to evolve. Do you think we need more? I, I really like how you described what you do, who you are, and how needed it is. Like the, you, you described it as like, without us, the person in Paducah, Kentucky never finds out about these things. Or I don't find out about them, right? Because I'm not in the White House. I'm not in these meetings. I'm not... I haven't thought about it. I mean, I have thought about it that way, but not in the way that we're talking about it right now. It seems like a like a hugely important mm-hmm. job. Do we need more? Do we need more people? Do we need more yeah. companies like Ch- you know, like Cheddar and uh, like these companies that are popping up saying we want to tell news differently to a different demographic? Um, do we need more of it? I think we'll always need innovation, and so it's hard to say because until that thing arises, I w- I have no idea whether or not we need it because I can't conceive of it. There, there are iterations of news that we have now, of journalism that we have now that we never would have ever, ever thought of. I mean, there's Twitter is performing a service now. I mean, you can't yeah. just sit around. You can't just sit around and wait until tomorrow morning to print the news. The news will break on Twitter yep. in real time. When, when you it's have insane. protests going on or what happens when a bomb goes off at the Boston Marathon, you can see videos live right at away. that moment right from a cell phone camera. I Before Twitter was invented, I could never have... Facebook Live or Snapchat or Instagram Live, like it's right away. So I think we always need innovation. I think the difference is is figuring out the needs, and and this is the difference in journalism. I wrote a piece not long ago called Brothers and Sisters Were Not Professional Journalists that was about like – yeah, what does this look like to be a professional journalist and what are the differences in things like commentary, analysis, and reporting? I, I think, you know, the reporter is the one that walks into the room and says, your dad died. And I'm the guy who sits with you on the couch and tells you how you ought to think about that or handle that. Mm. And both of those things are needed, right? The bearer of news is right. needed and the person who helps you process is needed. And the things I tell you on the couch, you might think those are, you might think I'm giving you bad advice. That's okay. Actually, by giving you bad advice, you can think of better advice, but you need somebody to help you process that. Yeah, get the wheels turning. So analysis and opinion actually plays a really good role, too. I think what has happened is, and you see this particularly in cable news, people only want opinion now. They just want the opinion, right? And so reporting has shrunk in terms of its market share. Uh, I think... Is that a good or bad thing? I think it's a bad thing. I think that's a bad thing. I don't even even know if MSNBC has a news show right now. I mean, maybe they do, but I don't even know that they do. Uh, yeah, it's all but, you opinion. Know, the it's big things is it's Tucker Carlson, it is Rachel Maddow, it is Sean Hannity. It's the extremes. Like I said before, we gravitate to the extremes, and that means opinion. And so I think we are losing what's really important, which is kind of that Walter Cronkite. I mean, even when I was a kid, you know, you had like Dan Rather, who mixed opinions about him, but sure. the majority of his career was was uh, ups- outstanding. You had people like, you know, Peter Jennings. You had... Tom Brokaw, you had these great newsmen who would get out there and try to deliver the news each night. And those people have largely gone the way of the yeah. buggy whip. Yeah. They've been replaced by, by the, the, the flanks and people who have really, really strong opinions. And I think you have to know what is true before you can know what you think about that truth. If there's somebody listening that wants to do this, wants to be you, you know, someday, wants to be a journalist, wants to be, you know, an opinion commentator, whatever. Because the, the main demographic of listeners, we, we have people that are teenagers and then all the way up to, we have some very older folks. And it's great. I love that, that wide swath, but they're mostly millennials, 18 to 34-ish. Yeah, what would you suggest to them? Well, I'm going to get... start and I'm going to tell you a story because okay. I think that's, if you're a storyteller, I'd like to tell a story. Yeah. So I graduated from college in 2004 with a degree in biology and chemistry. I went to work for a Fortune 500 chemical company working on um, cleaning products, like house cleaning products as kind of a consultant customer service guy. And I worked there for a number of months and then I felt this moment of calling where I there's almost a stirring inside me that seemed to say to me, to articulate, you're going to write. And I thought that was the weirdest thing, but I believed it. And I quit my job. I was applying to medical school at the time, and I withdrew all my applications, and I decided I'm going to be a writer. 
And for three years, I had four book manuscripts that were rejected by every publisher in the industry. I pitched uh, articles that were rejected by everybody from October 2004 until May of 2007, nothing. I worked at a cell phone store. I ended up starting graduate school in religion because I knew I wanted to be a religion writer and nothing. Uh, this I had, how long ago? What years are we talking so about? It was 2004 okay. when I really felt kind of called to this oh, work. Yeah, yep. 2007. So uh, right at now, my 10-year anniversary of being a writer. That's sort of scary. It makes me feel old. Thank you. But I will tell you, I was started out as somebody who had no experience. I, had, I, hadn't, I hadn't even taken an... I took one English class in college. It was Civil War literature. It was an elective. Yeah, I was going to ask. Did you write no, before? None. Yeah. Zero. Okay. Zero. No papers. It's funny. Looking back at it, though, I always loved writing. And people would always get me to help them write their papers and... I should have seen something there, but I thought I want to be a doctor and I don't know why, maybe just to make money or to be respected or something. Mm. But I can tell you, if a guy who has no experience, no platform, no education around this can do it, anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. And I always tell people, I'm not actually a particularly good writer, but I will outwork anybody else. Mm. And so if you can get out there and you can really work hard at it, you can do it. Now, here's something that I learned that will be really helpful to people. What I did was I always say, start small. People get out there and they, and they think that overnight they need to be like Anderson Cooper or something. Sure. And I'll tell you, I'm, I, like I said, uh, 2004, so I'm 13 years from that moment of calling. 13 years. And I've always wanted to write for The Atlantic. And I'm, now I get right to write columns for The Atlantic, but that didn't even happen until I moved to New York, so maybe three years ago. So we're looking like over a decade into it. So it was a long slog. But I will tell you, starting small is the best thing you can do. What I decided to do was, was to contact mostly Christian magazines and say, hey, what is it that other people don't want to do? Mm. You want a book reviewer that you're going to pay $30 to read a 400-page book and write a 100-word write a review on? I want that job. You want somebody to review films? I want that job. I wrote for Disciples World magazine. It's defunct now. It was for Disciples of Christ a denomination. And I would cover mission trips that some rando church in like California was doing. And I would go out there and beat the bushes and write these news stories. And over time, I earned the trust of these editors. And I was writing short form pieces and news pieces and longer pieces and feature stories. And then before you know it, I'm writing cover stories. And then I'm not just writing for Christian magazines, I'm writing for general market publications. And now I'm a columnist who writes for The Atlantic, I'm writing a piece for The Week, I've written this USA Today, The Daily Beast, massive, America's biggest, most prominent publications. But it wasn't something that happened overnight. Mm. I started small, I was willing to, you know, at one time, when I first started publishing pieces, I was taking a full load in a master's program. So I was taking 18 hours in a master's program. I was working 40 hours a week at Sprint Nextel selling cell phones and car chargers. And then I would get home, burn out and tired, study a little bit, and about 10.30 at night, I'd start writing. And I'd write till about 12.30, one o'clock in the morning, go to sleep, wake up at eight, start again. And that's what I did for year after year after year. And it was a long, long time before anybody handed me a contract for a book. It was a long time before I could quit my job and write full time. But uh, I feel like if you, if you really feel called to this, you absolutely can do it. But buckle your seatbelt. Be willing to do it for little or no money for an undetermined amount of time. And eventually, if you work hard enough, you will outlast everybody else. Because the people who are trying to do what I was doing when I started to do it, I don't know where any of those people are they're, today. Yeah, they're probably yeah, working a 40-hour job that they potentially hate. Probably hate. That's right. That's, the, the advice you just gave is good for anything and everyone, really. I think people that are our age and below, there's a lot of desire to give a damn and to change the world and to do so, just something important, some, that thing that's burning in our hearts. And we give up too quickly. Three months in, it doesn't work out. Five months in, six months in, it doesn't work out. And so we settle for you know, a job at Target. Or in those like, or in many cases in the church, or in the, yes, 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 because right. that's where a lot of the rejects go. I hate to say that, but it's true. No, it 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 is. I have a lot of friends that are not that, and I have some friends that are. I totally yes, that is totally true. And so patience. I heard patience over and over again in what you mm -hmm. were saying. Just mm -hmm. patience. Stick with it. And if you're if you you said it, outwork outwork the other people. 
If you outwork them, then when the time comes for that book to be written, for that job to be done, for that piece to be written, for whatever it is, they're gonna pick you. You're gonna get picked, whether that's just, I'm not saying a particular person, but the world, like the universe, whatever. You're gonna get picked to do that because you stuck with it and worked hard. And the other guy gave up at mile two, and you're at mile, whatever a marathon is, 20, 26.2. Right, okay, Yeah, you're like at 26, mile 26, and the other guy gave up at- That's right. I have Eugene Peterson on the brain because uh, I said I did an interview with Eugene Peterson this morning and I'm trying, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it, but he has a phrase and I feel like it's so apropos. Mm. He talks about a long obedience in the same direction. And I think I cannot tell you how many times I've written something and I took a risk on it. And I, and I hear this phrase online Oh, Jonathan, uh, the people tweet, Jonathan, look, Jonathan's finally jumped the shark. And I, even to this day, I panic and I think, oh my God, my career's over. I can't believe I put myself that way. <laughs> and yet I just keep doing it. I, I, I keep adhering to that long obedience. I do feel called to this work. I'm obedient to that calling. I keep pushing in the same direction yeah. and I'm still here. And you know what? They're not. They're not. They're not. They're not. And I think that for most people, if they will take that kind of Eugene Peterson approach, What's right. that quote again? Or that what, are, what? I don't know if you generalize well, it or if it's yeah. Verbatim. No, it's it's actually it's. I, I believe it's. If I'm mistaken, it's a title of one of his books. Okay. Um, and I have it somewhere around here. I love you. A Peterson. long obedience in the same direction, and that's sort of his metaphor for the Christian life. But I think for your spiritual it life, it's the same as your professional life. Yeah. It's the person who just says, "I'm going to run this out." I'm gonna, when I'm on fumes, I'm gonna keep moving. When I'm being criticized, I'm gonna keep moving. When my parents don't support me, I'm gonna keep moving. When my bills are late, I'm gonna keep moving. And I've had times where somebody had to step in and pay my rent. And there are times where I thought I wasn't gonna make it. And there were times when I was shipwrecked in the media and I thought my career was over many times, sometimes for personal reasons and sometimes for professional reasons. And yet I just made up my mind early on that no matter what came, I was gonna keep walking. I was gonna keep doing this. And I can tell you that is the most, I don't care if you sell insurance or if you write novels. The number one thing as I've walked this out, that's the number one thing that determines whether somebody will be successful in what they're doing or not. It's fantastic advice, really. Well, I hope so. Casey Neistat has a video called Do What You Can't. Mm -hmm. That's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Is like, nobody gave us permission to do this. Nobody's telling us, in fact, the more people telling us not to do it because it doesn't make sense or that's stupid or you haven't been successful thus far or who would want to read that or watch that or hear that. And uh, yeah, just do what you can't. And I love that phrase. I love what you just said. So thank you for that. Well, and, and, and I will tell you this, the biggest enemy, and this is, this is cliche, so I'm going to preface it. The biggest enemy is yourself. Sure. Because I no, true. cannot tell you. I, I just finished a, uh, a book manuscript. By the time this book comes out, it'll have been five years since the last book I published with my name on it. And I think, I can't do it anymore. I don't have anything to say. Mm. And I'll tell you, this is a, in the words of Anne Lamott, this is a shitty first draft. It is brutal. <laughs> it's got to grow in editing. Sure. I think it's going to be a great book, but it's just not where I want it to be. I wake up, I'm so discouraged about this book. I think I haven't, I haven't you know, created a splash with a column in a while. I'm irrelevant. What I do doesn't matter. I mean, if you talk to my counselor, she could probably give you an earful, you know, because my, my therapist is That's where say, I'm headed like, right oh after this. Gosh. Right? I'm oh, just yeah. kidding. Yeah, right? You should. You should interview her <laughs> just, after this. We'll just do the, we'll do the follow-up. Right. I'll, sign, I'll sign a disclosure agreement. You can get some good stuff from her. But I say this all the time, this, these feelings of rejection, the inner critic is worse than the critic on the outside, right? Because they know everything. Yep. They, the inner critic knows exactly, they know those soft spots. They know that space in the armor where they can really They know everything you. that no one else knows about. And, and it's still, to this day, no matter, and I, I sometimes think about like, you know, when I was five years ago, 10 years ago, I, I would say, well, if I can only get to this place, and I've already blown past that, and still, now that you just keep moving the goalpost and you keep judging yourself and you're not gentle with yourself and, and you absolutely are your worst critic. I think of that, there was a book title that was maybe from the early, mid-90s when you know, business books were booming that was called All You Can Do Is All You Can Do and All You Can Do Is Enough. Hmm. And I, I, oftentimes I have to repeat that to myself that look, I wake up in the morning, I say, okay, all I can do today is all I can do and all I can do is enough. And that's it. 
and you have to let it go. You've got to, there's a discipline, a spiritual and a professional discipline of just letting go. And I'm, I'm still learning that, but I think that is super important because there's a lot of people who the reason that they don't, they're not doing what they should be doing is themselves. It's the person that looks them in the mirror and tells them they're not good enough. And, and really it's their mother's voice. It's their second grade yep. teacher's voice speaking through their mouth. Yep. And there's so many people you know, listening to this right now. The reason they're not doing what they know that they should be doing is because that voice that talks from them to them every single morning. And they have to find a way to tell that person to shut up, to get out of the way so that they can start walking that long obedience to begin with. Round of applause for that. Uh, we, you know, in the South, in the South, we have this phrase, we'll say, that'll preach. That'll preach. Sometimes I think that, but I'm really not preaching just the people listening. I'm preaching to myself because sure. you do not totally. know how much I'm struggling with this even right now. Yeah. And that should, I guess that should if encourage a lot of people. I explained the last 15 months of my life, hmm. literally since we left Seattle, I've been vagabonding for 15 months with three kids every day. I have to, it's, it's, it's another iteration of <laughs> all I can do is all I can do and all I can do is enough. Right. But it's that every day mm. because- mm. For every one success, I've had three failures over the last 15 hmm. months, but it's going somewhere mm-hmm. and I'm committed to it mm-hmm. and it's going to work. Mm-hmm. It's going to fucking work. Mm-hmm. I know it is, mm-hmm. but you got to keep going for it instead right. of quitting at mile three and four and five and six. This is a 26.2. Like you got to keep going. Mm. For people that have no idea who you are, well, they do now, but before this interview, before this conversation, they didn't. What do you want them to go check out? What do you want them to read? Whether it's books or, oh, man. Um, you know, articles or long form, short form pieces. Like what, 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 what do you recommend they go and check out? Okay. Well, I have never said this ever okay. publicly, Really? but I never said this. Exclusive. You're getting exclusive. Uh, so I have a new book coming out and the title of that book is, and if you've made it all the way through this podcast, then you deserve it. That's right. Um, it's called learning to speak God from scratch. And the subtitle is why spiritual words are vanishing and how we can revive them. The book will release in March of next year. I would say pre-order that book. Okay. If you and because I think that's going to be a book that's going to be incredibly helpful. It's got Barna data in it that no one has ever seen before. Okay. That's going to be I think really really interesting, going to create a great conversation. If you cannot wait, I wrote my last book was called Jesus is Better Than You Imagine, so you can certainly do that. You can follow me on social media. But for, I would say for the people out there who want to be writers, you feel like you want to do something with words. If you go, I, I I've, I've have this renewed passion in this phase of life to, to help those people. And there's a website called write brilliant, writebrilliant.com. And that is a website where I train writers and there's great blog content that is out there. That's totally free. I have videos, I have hmm. blog posts, we're going to launch a, bl- a podcast soon, I think, um, that we're going to do on that site. And then um, if you wanted to, there's a, I have a free, I think it's maybe jumpstartmywriting.com, but there's somewhere you can get like a free three-part e-course that I offer with a, an author named Margaret Feinberg, who's partnered with me in this. And then we have a 16-week course that we offer through there. We have live wow. events for people once you progress so far. And I can tell you, we've helped people publish books all over the place. We have a girl who just signed to, uh, a memoir with Penguin, who published a, an incredibly moving column in the New York Times last year. It was one of their number one pieces last year about uh, getting stage four cancer that's just, just gut-wrenching Riveting. and gorgeous and beautiful. We've, we've had people that you would know those people, and they were nobody. You know, it's a it's been the most beautiful thing to see people who, well, they write better than I do. Some of these people write sure. better than I do. Uh, that one of, the, one of the people who came to one of our boot camps, Kate Bowler, uh, who I mentioned before, uh, who teaches at Duke Divinity School, she can write me under the table. She's such a great writer, one of the best writers. You just won't believe it. She's got a great memoir coming out. To be able to interact with these people, to learn from them, to share what I have learned, to share what Margaret has learned in our decades in this industry together collectively has been a real gift. And what I love to do is to take people who have a dream, who don't know how to... I, I believe that, that, that your dreams are worth fighting for, that they're worth realizing, that your words can change the world if you only have the wherewithal, the knowledge, the coaching to pursue it. And so I always send people to writebrilliant.com, not just because... It's not like it's like... I don't even 
by the time all the expenses are taken out, I make like, you know, three cents or whatever. <laughs> but it's, I just love to help people in that way because I want to help people like me. I cannot tell you how much discouragement I fought all along the way. Mm. And for somebody who said, I can get you there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk with you. I'm going to give you a community. I wish I would have had that when I was starting out. Mm. And so that's one of the things I want to gift to people, to give to people. And uh, that's one of the things I'm really excited about. That's amazing. For those listening, all of, I'll get all those URLs, all that information, put it in the show notes so that you don't have to remember. When is the book available for pre-order? Is it already? No. No, it is okay. technically available already on Amazon. Okay. And actually, if you order it right now, it's marked in a trade paperback for like dirt cheap. So now's a good time to get it. But if you tweet about it, I won't retweet you because I, I'm not nope. sharing anything about this we, book. No, people have to listen to this. You have to. To be able to do it. And actually, I'm, I'm, I'm doing 10 of these podcast conversations over the next mm. four days, like mm-hmm. yesterday and then DC, Philly, Baltimore. There's a lot coming. But we're going to do this one this coming Tuesday, which is the next release. So we'll do this one right away. So our talk will be out this coming Tuesday so that people can get that if they want it before. So we'll do this one first out of all the 10. Fantastic. Um, I think it'll be super helpful for people. So um, I always ask this question and it's my favorite because people get tripped up and they don't know what to say usually. Maybe you'll know what to say. Hypothetical question. We're gonna end with a hypothetical. Someday, for some odd reason, um, when you die, I'm going to give your eulogy. Hopefully it's along many years from now. But I'm gonna, family, friends, people that loved your writing, all the people that you influenced with your writing and they're gonna be there. And I'm going to give, I'm going to speak words over your life and people are going to hear and they're going to listen knowing that this is what your life was about. What do you hope that I will say on that day? What do you hope that, that your legacy will be once you're gone? Mm. You know, I am just shooting from the hip. Sure. It's funny you asked this because I asked Eugene Peterson the same question. Okay. He had a much better answer than I have. <laughs> But I just copy him then. I'll I, never know. I think the number no, one thing that people question about me is my motivation. Mm. And and you get that a lot these days. People will say, Oh, here's Jonathan again just posting clickbait. And it's like, you know, do you even know what clickbait is? Like you I would not a- believe last night. Huh? No, this morning. Either last night or this morning, I was meeting with a friend. They were not saying in an accusatory way. They asked me, because I had said that, you know, the conversation they had asked. Does, doesn't he post a lot of like clickbaity stuff? They literally asked that this morning mm-hmm. or last night, one of the two. Mm-hmm. Within the last 18 hours, somebody said that same exact thing mm-hmm. to me. I mean, maybe I have- And I did not affirm it, right. but maybe I'm just I, telling you. Maybe I have really good headline writers, but I, but I no, you know, yeah. the writer doesn't always write, typically doesn't write the headline, but here's the thing, like, and I, and I say the number one thing you can establish with an audience is trust. I always deliver. If I say something in the headline, and I say, That's what I it's say, about. if somebody says it, that you're gonna get that. Now, you may think that I'm trying to poke the bear. Fine. That's I, I think like, you know, one of the the marks of my writing is I try to be provocative. I feel that's my personality. I feel like that's what I've been called to. I think that's what it means to raise questions others are afraid to to raise. And so I I am sometimes poking the bear or go. Well, why are you going there? Why are you always picking on the hot button issues? That's what I feel called to do. If you don't feel called to do that, fine. You don't have to do that. That's what I feel called to do. That's what I'm doing. People call that clickbait. That's not actually what clickbait right. is. Clickbait is like this thing. This video clip of this eight year old will make you throw up, and then yeah. you watch it. And you don't throw this up. This man has a third arm. And right. It's about yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I, there was a. Oh my gosh, President Obama was decapitated at the White House today, and it's just really like the photographer like cut his head off. Yes. So that's clickbait. I'm not tricking people, and and it pisses me off when people say that because it's a it's questions my motivation as a writer and. That, it's not my motivation. What I really would like people to say is, is that this was somebody who always tried to do what he thought was right. He always tried to champion what he thought was right. He, always, he, he was always really following his calling and he messed up a lot. He was totally imperfect, but his motives were not misaligned. They were not nefarious. And I, I really would hope people would say that. That's good. That's a good legacy because many people cannot say that. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, a lot of people out there, I'm not trying, listen, I can tell you this and think about what I said. We'll go full circle. Here I was born the son of a religious leader who has a mega church to this day. I used to be a teaching pastor there. If I really wanted to build a platform and align my pockets with You're money, in the wrong, yeah, you're in the wrong business, dude. I did it the wrong way. Yeah. 
I, 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 it would have been much easier if I would have towed the line, played to the right, you know, watched my P's and Q's, you know, moved home, married a woman, had three kids, preached those messages that were three points, all alliterated, you know, parroted the talking points, stuck to the conservative theology. You know, people always say this, and this is, this is, it, it's, it is, it just shows you how ignorant some Christians are. Christians will say, for example, I remember I wrote this article about Jen Hatmaker who, who affirmed yeah. uh, LGBT um, marriage and said she, she supported it. And people said, oh yeah, you know, it's real easy to please culture. What is culture? You know, it's not monolithic. There's also a Christian culture and that Christian culture can make you rich. And what she did was she lost a lot of readers. She lost a lot of money. She lost a lot of speaking events. She wasn't lining her pockets. What she could have done is play to her subculture. I could have done that. I didn't do that. And I hope people will recognize that one day. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think people will learn a lot. I think you said a lot of things that will make people think. And I'm glad we did this. Yeah. I'm glad we made it work, even though the, the tick the TV show tried to, tried to make it not work. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And I, you know, hopefully when this book comes out, mm-hmm. we can do this again because I would love to talk about it some more. Yeah. So thanks for doing it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Don't leave just yet. You can find out more about Jonathan Merritt on social media. Just look him up at jonathanmerritt.com, jumpstartmywriting.com, and writebrilliant.com. If you liked our conversation and enjoyed it, make sure to go let him know on Twitter. I know it's a huge ask, but it would help us a ton if you would subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Helps us get into the ears and lives of many more listeners. Last week, I started highlighting some reviews left on Apple Podcasts, and I want to continue doing that today. Today's review is from CMW71. I don't know who you are, but that is quite the username. Here's the review. In a day where apathy and passivity seem to reign, this podcast is like a breath of fresh air. Thank you so much for your generous review, CMW71. And if you want yours to be read on the podcast and you want yours to have a chance to be read on the podcast, go leave a review. Lastly, make sure to support our wonderful sponsors, Scout Books and Ruby Cup. They're both doing great work and it would mean the world to me if you would let them know on social media and buy products from them. That's it for this week, friends. Tune in next week for a very special episode with three incredible humans from the great city of Baltimore. Love you all. Bye for now.